the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Chris O'Brien, our co-host this week. Chris, after we had this fascinating discussion the other week about the hollow earth, about the earth-based UFOs, etc., etc., with Alan Greenfield and Walter Bosley and Michael Mott and Mike Cleland, I was thinking here, what do you think about the hollow earth? Did you ever read some of those early books from Dr. Bernard and all those other people? Um, not that particular one, but one of the first uh, science fiction books I read as a kid was uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, which always was, you know, has always fascinated me. The whole idea of the hollow earth has always been intriguing to me. I think scientifically it's it's uh, untenable. Um, of course, now with the, the latest word from Richard Hoagland that uh, the moon, Mars moon Phobos is uh, is hollow. It kind of brings that whole thing into more of a larger big picture context. But if I, I, people I don't think, think so. that I'm behaving like a typical host of the Paracast saying that maybe Richard Hoagland's logic is hollow, <laughs> I wouldn't argue with that one, Gene. Uh, <laughs> I've, you know, I've never really been much of a fan. Um, I do have problems with people uh, that create cults of personality in this field. But in terms of the, of the subject matter, I, I thought that, that the show was a very fascinating. I think Alan and, and Michael had some really interesting observations, uh, very bright guys. I, I, I do sense that uh, the whole concept of, of, of the hollow earth, I think, um, as, as kind of a fairy tale or fantasy, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't, it, to me, it is uh, it just that. And I do think that there's a good chance that some ancient civilization did extensively uh, dig tunnels underground. I do think that there are undiscovered tunnel systems and underground cavern systems. But the whole concept of a, of a hollow earth, quote-unquote, to me, is, is a little bit fanciful. My reading about the hollow earth, by the way, precedes maybe what you read, or maybe it came later, but it was a different concept. And that was the Pellucidor series from Edgar Rice Burroughs, where yeah, oh, they yeah. went to the North Pole, what? crossed the polar gap, and inside found the great central sun at the center of the Earth. Yeah, I read them all, too. Sure. And that, of course, was the Ray Palmer image, to some uh -huh. degree. Because people forget, people forget that some of the final works from Edgar Rice Burroughs appeared in Amazing Stories when Ray Palmer was editor. Hmm. I, that I, was before I, you I and I were born. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I also liked one of my favorite comics was the Golden Key uh, comics of Torox, Son of Stone. Two uh, paleo Indians ago uh, into kind of a hollow earth uh, scenario. I was always very fascinated by that. You know, the whole Mactone's idea of crypto terrestrials, if they do live here, then, then they've got to be somewhere. So it's either they're subterranean or sub oceanic. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, obviously that it's a closed system phenomenon. I, I, I truly believe. And, um, and I do think that uh, those are our two uh, most obvious choices uh, in terms of where to look for these crypto terrestrials, uh, to, to use that coin term. But again, I you know I think uh, I think even though uh, you know it sounds good on paper, I think a lot more research and investigation needs to be done before anything definitive is is ever going to come forth. The problem I have is how do you prove such a thing? How do you prove it without actually bringing one of those beings <laughs> front and center and saying, okay? Where do you come from? And many of they say, oh, we're living those caves in whatever language they speak, or we're under the ocean. 
And then why believe them? And that's the other, of course, issue. I mean, when you meet these beings and people do meet up with beings and they say, where are you from? What are you doing? What's your purpose? Yeah, would you why? believe them if they told you? Sure. Why should they tell you the truth? I mean, maybe they have a prime directive that says we're not going to interfere in the affairs of these primitive earthlings. And it could be the primitive people who share the world with us and are making a complete mess of it. But whatever they are, they may also have a philosophy as, you know, don't tell the truth. Don't tell them where we are because they'll come after us. If yeah, just tell them what they need to know. Exactly. Or, you know, what we think they need to know. Right. I'd love to have somebody doing like John Greenwald or somebody do an FOIA request, uh, requesting the the uh, crustal mapping program that they've been doing from some uh, super high tech satellite in space that's been operational since the late 90s. Supposedly, they've mapped a good deal of the Earth's crust already down to 40 miles. That would give us an indication of ancient tunnel systems and potential, uh, you know, places to really focus our, our investigative uh Intentions. Uh, that would be, I think, a, a good first step. So anybody out there in the mood to do an FOIA request, figure out some terms uh, to use for finding these uh, these images and looking, looking, uh, getting the data released, uh, you know, that's probably there somewhere. Assuming, of course, that they aren't using secret telegrays to confound the instrumentation. Well, there you go. <laughs> There's always an answer. I mean, if you don't have the information, it's being hidden from you. Yeah. I mean, just because you remember owls at night doesn't mean that you weren't abducted by UFO aliens or wherever they're from. Maybe they're crypto owls. Yeah. And you know what? Think about this. I have a site called Tech Night Owl. Okay? Right. Mm -hmm. Why did I choose the Tech Night Owl? Mm, tapping into an, uh, an unresolved screen image. Well, now the people who listen to the show in the forums at forum.theparacast.com, they're going to speculate. Hey, is yeah. Gene an abductee? Yeah, maybe you should give your, your little uh, owl logo uh, almond eyes. Well, I can't draw. So I took what the artist <laughs> gave me. I never specified specific types of eyes, you know. I just said, you know, make it look okay. And it actually, it has kind of like golden eyes, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> and that's not my fault. And it's interesting, too. We had a reader of my technology site, technightowl.com. He came along and said, you need a good logo. And I said, okay. So he came up with that logo. I never heard from him since. Maybe he really? went back into the center of the earth or something. Oh, gosh. So it's probably some sort of subliminally programmed logo. That's no, right. he, probably, he probably went back to Madison Avenue is where he went. He was in France. <laughs> okay. No French right. jokes, please. French crypto owls. That's right. So today we're going to explore the really mysterious Pennsylvania. Ah, uh, yep. Gets my vote for the most uh, anomalous state on in, east of the Rocky Mountains or the Continental Divide. That it's kind of a toss-up between Pennsylvania and Missouri, but I think Pennsylvania wins out. People forget most Pennsylvania is one huge state. It takes hours yep. to drive from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. Yep. Right, and I lived in Pennsylvania for a number of years. They were very strange years, seriously. Yeah. Well, looking at Stan's book, Stan Gordon is our guest. He, he's one of those unsung heroes out there. This is going to be a real treat to uh, to talk with Stan again. 
he's been at this almost 50 years and just real slogging away, doing the field work, logging the data, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk and, and keeping a low, low profile, not promoting himself as some sort of, you know, personality and someone that's out there to, to, you know, maximize the, the financial potentials of all this. He's a, he, he's a real, uh, I really look up to him. I look up to his work and, and I'm, this is really exciting for me to uh, be on the, on the show today with him. Stan Gordon, author of Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, coming up next on The Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Stan Gordon has a new book out called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. And I don't think he was talking about the fact that I used to live in Pennsylvania, therefore made it really mysterious. You're not talking about me, are you? Definitely not. <laughs> okay, I feel kind of settled there. But I remember living in Pennsylvania in the 1970s, and we had UFO flap there, and then I learned from people like yourself and Kurt Southerly and others who were investigating things that were happening that Pennsylvania is really mysterious. Lots of strange things go on there. And what is there about that state that seems to attract the strange and unknown? Well, I, I wish I had the answers to all the questions people ask us all the time, and I don't have a definite answer for that, but I can tell you that historically there's always been a lot of strange activity going here across the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, we go back to uh, you know, the, the early references of Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania, a lot of early references to UFO sightings being observed in different parts of the state. I mean, the earliest firsthand account I have of a Bigfoot sighting goes back to 1931, up in Indian Head, up in Fayette County, PA, and we've talked before about Fayette County. It's a hotbed for all type of strange phenomena year after year. Fayette County is uh, among those counties that border along the Chestnut Ridge, which we've talked about. The Chestnut Ridge is a mountain range that runs from Preston County, West Virginia, through Westmoreland, Fayette, and Indiana County in southwest PA. And historically, there's just been a tremendous amount of strange activity along that mountain range, which is about 100 miles long. UFO sightings, all kind of strange creature reports, Bigfoot sightings, uh, Black Panthers, uh, of course, mountain lions, uh, 
strange uh, reports of underground sounds along the ridge over the years. Just a lot of weird things have happened along the Chestnut Ridge. You know what? I wanted to ask you something before we really progress on this, because we've had this discussion going on quite a while. You originally came to prominence in paranormal research because of the Kecksburg incident, which happened you know, many, many years ago. And I think the question we've been asking, Stan, is whether we should still be investigating or trying to get information about these real old cases and concentrate more on the more recent stuff. Well, you know, I, I've worked on that case since I was 16 years old. I have them back December 9, 1965. And it's a very fascinating case. We have a lot of information on it, yet there are many unanswered questions. And, of course, the, the main unanswered question is still, what was the object that fell that day, or should I say late afternoon, December 9, 1965, that was interesting enough that the military responded to that scene, apparently recovered the object, and even now, after so many years later, they still want to open uh, the information on what exactly was recovered. And uh, I still receive some input on the case. Every year I still get inf some information on it. And I'm still hopeful that someday we're going to find that person or find that information that might finally let us close the information on an event and finally have an answer as to what exactly we were dealing with. One of the things that's always puzzled me about it is is how, uh, you know, with these wonderful efforts that have been made over the last, oh, 10 or 15 years for uh, Freedom of Information uh, Act requests, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, we haven't really been able to pull much information out of the government on this because obviously the, the military was involved and you would think there would be some sort of paper trail that would give us at least some clues on what exactly uh, their role was and uh, and information about what, what the actual uh, craft was or, or object. And, and I agree. And I started doing FOIA our reports on these type of thing on this case going back many, many years. And then, of course, Leslie Kane with the uh, Coalition of Freedom Information uh, worked through with the, that lawsuit that they had uh, with uh, NASA contain, uh, pertaining to the event. And, you know, actually the only document that actually pertains to the case that's ever really surfaced was that Project Blue Book report, uh, which basically it listed it as actually an ACME PA instead of Kecksburg, which I understand the reason why that would be, and I believe that was because they talked to some members of a family that lived within walking distance of where the object reportedly fell, and they had an ACME mailing address, and I believe that's probably why that was always uh, put under that specific name. But, um, of course, that report goes on to say that a search continued to around, I believe, around uh, 2 o'clock or so in the morning that nothing was found. And you have... I mean, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people who were directly involved or indirectly involved, lots of people with information. And there are many people that late afternoon, of course, this happened late afternoon when the object reportedly fell in the area. And when it came in, those people saw it drop down, said it didn't fall down as though it was something that came in at a high rate of speed, like a meteorite or reentry of space debris or satellite. But this thing came in relatively slowly, almost like a controlled landing. And then momentarily after it fell, there was a column of blue smoke that rose up with dust in the area, but it dissipated very quickly after that. And, you know, there was so much we didn't know back in that time when this happened. I mean, it was a major news story in this area the next day, and all the local paper was making the national news. It was hitting all the wire services, and they were talking about the military involvement and the air being cordoned off. And uh, 
and then you had the, the report the next day after all the other reports came out that the, the, there was a search for the object that was in the Greenwich Tribune review, and the search revealed nothing. Nothing was found. There was a search, but people had been mistaken in that. People had seen a bright meteor in the sky, but nothing had fallen to the ground. And I can remember just days after that happened, there was so much talk around this community of people seeing what they said was a large military flatbed tractor-trailer truck carrying a large tarpaulin-covered object out of the air at a high rate of speed about 1 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, over the years, we gathered a lot of information, and so much of the information I got wasn't easy to get a hold of because so many people didn't want to come forward. Even today, there are many people who still call me occasionally who haven't ta contacted me after all these years that this happened. And uh, quite often, I'd get a lead from a friend, a neighbor, a relative of somebody, and we followed up on the case. But I, I can tell you, in the summer of 1990, before the Unsolved Mystery TV show did a season premiere on the Kexper case, a gentleman approached me, and I was able to verify his background quite easily. And um, he told me that he was a member of the Air Force Security Team, uh, Air Force Security Police Team at Lockbourne Air Force Base that guarded the object when it came in to that base from Pennsylvania early morning hours of December 10th. And he told me that the security on the base was even higher than when President Kennedy had visited that base uh, for a previous visit. The, um, wow. The and they said they backed the object and the trailer into a hangar. There was a security team put around that area. They were given a, a shoot-to-kill order for anybody to approach that area without the proper identification. Now, this fellow told me he wasn't on that team that long. He was called off from there and do something else. But he said he heard it wasn't there that long that it went over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base from there, which other individuals... All, again, different people, unknown to each other, verified the fact that, yes, it went into Wright-Patterson. In fact, we even know exactly what building it went to. One fellow even drew me out a, a whole road sketch of all the buildings and the layouts, and he said, you get in, into the base, I'll show you exactly where it was. But, of course, where it is now, we have absolutely no idea. And, uh, I mean, I'm convinced without any doubt whatsoever that an object of unknown origin did fall that afternoon outside of Kecksburg, PA, and the military recovered it. What that object was is still open for speculation. But, you know, we've had so many people over the years who have contacted me who believe they know what it was, and there's many, many different theories. And everything, of course, from, you know, a Russian satellite to uh, a meteorite to one guy told me he was sure it was some type of projectile that was fired from a giant gun in Canada, you know, all type of secret things. Uh, I mean, we've had all kind of people come with information. But when you try to get information on it or you try to get the evidence, it just doesn't fit with what we know. And there, you know, got to remember, whatever this thing was back in 1965, this thing's coming in over a large area, comes in over the first scene, you know, over several states. It comes in over the greater Pittsburgh area. It moves out towards Westmoreland County, out towards Greensburg. And as it's passing over Greensburg, moving out roughly Route 30 East, it makes a turn to the south. And it's moving out, and it's seen sequentially by people in these little farming communities. It moves out to the mountain, out Laurelville. Now, other people around there see this thing up in that area, and apparently makes a turn and comes back towards Kecksburg. Then it makes another turn and goes down into the woods. And... What we didn't know at that time, and it was many years later, I mean, it wasn't until 1987 that we actually found the first eyewitness, and it was just by sheer luck that we found him, um, who claimed to have seen this object on the ground. And we, what we now know is that right after this thing fell, apparently some individuals locally went down into the woods and saw this large metallic acorn-shaped object semi-buried in the ground. 
this thing, from what we got from eyewitnesses, is approximately estimated to be probably 10 to 12 or feet or more in length, about 8 to 10 feet in diameter. As uh, one witness, uh, who the first witness we met was Jim Romansky in 1987. At that time, for many years, he kept anonymous. But he was a machine. His background was that of a machinist, and he said to him, it looked like somebody took liquid metal of an off-gold colored liquid metal, poured into an acorn-shaped mold. Because he said it was like one solid piece of metal. There's no rivets, no seams, no fuselage, no windows that he could see because the semi buried in the ground. He couldn't see the bottom. And on the bottom of the raised up area of the acorn are these unusual markings that he said were more like symbols. And he said later on, after spending a lot of time going into libraries and looking at ancient languages and ancient drawings, that the closest thing was like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. And other witnesses described seeing the very similar type of thing. In fact, the one witness uh, who contacted me after the Unsolved Mysteries show, his name we called, his name was Myron, and Myron's story was very interesting. Uh, he called me after the show aired, and he said, I guess I'm allowed to talk to you about it now since it was on television. And, of course, I asked him, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said he had worked uh, for a large supply house in Ohio at the time, and a, a Navy officer came in to that office with a special type of glazed engineering brick and placed a large order of this to be sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This was just two, three days after the incident in Pennsylvania. Anyhow, the story was that there was two, there was two different loads of brooks uh, sent into that base. The first day... Uh, another driver who wouldn't talk to us at first, but later verified the story. He was there the day before Myron was there. He uh, went into the base. He was escorted in, sent his uh, supply of, of bricks into that area. And outside this large warehouse building, he said, was this flatbed trailer with this tarped object. And he described like a big Liberty Bell from its shape. Of course, he didn't see it was covered. And the next day, both he and Myron went to the base. Uh, they were escorted in. They were told, stay with your vehicles, just do your job, don't be looking around. Well, Myron was very curious because after a period of time, he'd seen these guys in these white coveralls with sidearms and various type of protective clothing, and every once in a while they're coming out and changing their outer clothing. And he's wondering, like, what's going on in there? So when he thought the time was clear and nobody was around, he walked over and looked at the entrance of this building, and he said, <laughs> up in the scaffolding, here is this big metallic Again, acorn-shaped object with the hieroglyphic markings on it. There's ladders going up. There's men on the ladder, and apparently trying to open this thing up again inside of it. And I guess he asked a few questions, and at first they must have thought he was cleared to be there, and then they realized he wasn't. And asked, what he told me was basically he was pretty much threatened not to talk about it, but they told him that in 20 years this will all be public knowledge. And he, he thought, well, you know, 20 years later, and then he right. sees the show in 1990, and, he, and they're talking about it, and they said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it now. So anyhow, you know, we know where the object went to, where it's at today. Of course, we have no idea. What do you think the bricks were being used for that the Navy guy ordered from them? Well, what he told us was that they actually sealed this thing up inside of a building. They what I recall is he said they put some type of a lead-lined seal and also bricked this up with a special type of engineering brick, and basically they put it up inside of another building and bricked this thing up. And uh, So that, that would indicate said, that it may have had some sort of uh, radiation, radiation possibly? Or? That's what, his, well, that's what how, his idea was. How about some of your witnesses that were on site in the woods? Uh, did anyone ever report any sort of you know uh, things that you would ascribe to radiation poisoning? Did anybody get sick after they were there? The firemen that that uh, were part of the search team, I think. Uh, there was, there was, 
there is one witness who was relatively close who doesn't really like to talk about it much, but he has had a lot of history, even in more recent years, of having various type of physical problems, and which he always felt was being attributed to being close to the object. There was a family named the Hayes family who lived in a small farming house they were running at the time. It was the closest farmhouse to the impact site. And you saw them. They were on the Unsolved Mystery Show, I believe, and they were on my documentary. I produced Kexler's right. Untold Story. Mrs. Hayes has now passed away, as so many other very prominent witnesses to the case who have gone public. The majority of witnesses today still have never gone public for various reasons, and that just gives them more insight into their credibility, but they had no idea that the little details they gave me, how they verified other people's accounts. But going back to the Hayes case, they lived in that house that was very close to the impact site. The kids in that house, the woods was their playground. They knew the woods very well. They played down there every day. They were down to the day before. And John Hayes and his brother went down into the woods the next morning after seeing all the military activity around their house, having military people actually coming in and out of their home and actually using the telephone and apparently um, reversing the phone calls because they never had any bills on their phone. They were calling different people. And uh, John and his brother went down the next day. The first thing they had to do, they had to mend this fence out there because they had some cows. The military had cut the fence line to take these trucks down to that area town toward the impact site because you couldn't take the trucks actually right to the impact site because of the tree growth down there. You know what? But anyhow, we could go into a whole show again on Plattsburgh, right. and we've already done that. And I want to ask a couple of key questions. Let's move on to some other cases. All right. Sure. The mention of radiation, is there any indication the people, the witnesses who died, did they die prematurely or as a result of normal factors? Well, you know, we only know of so many. I have names of, of people who have given me names of relatives and there's no way to prove it. Most of these people have passed away years and years ago before I had the chance to even interview them. And there was rumors of things like that, but nothing we can verify. Okay. Now, at this point, in 2010, you mentioned there were witnesses who still haven't come forward. How do you go about finding who they are, getting them to talk, and getting some more information about this? Well, I, the whole thing is, even around here, there's been a lot of media coverage, a lot of people, and whenever you have a media coverage of it, sometimes people do decide to come forward. I mean, when uh, there was this talk a number of years ago when uh, the Sci-Fi Channel was doing a big investigation of the case, and they were showing they were doing this very intensely, very seriously, then there was a, there was a lot of new people that began to come forward at that time. And occasionally... Uh, I'll get somebody who will come forward. I had a fellow came forward last year that uh, had a little bit of interesting information, but none of this, I mean, it all helps to verify other people's accounts of what we know, but we just haven't gotten that that one case, that one bit of important information that might seal the case. I mean, one of the rumors we've heard for years, and many, many people have told us this, that there are there are pictures around somewhere. People have seen black and white pictures that somebody took of the object back at that time down in the woods. And various people told us they've actually seen the pictures, but nobody's ever come forward with them. And we're still hopeful someday those pictures might turn up somewhere. It's like the famous uh, Thunderbird uh, photograph from the turn of the century yeah. that so many people claim to have seen, but nobody can find a... A copy exactly. of Speaking of Thunderbirds, uh, one of the things that I was really uh, uh, found I found really intriguing in really mysterious Pennsylvania is some of these amazing uh, Thunderbird uh, sightings, including 
some uh, broad daylight over shopping centers, landing, almost breaking trees and stuff. Uh, you've had other uh, interesting aerial crypto-type phenomena around the area. Why don't you describe some of the reports that you've had over the years of these types of objects or, or crypto creatures? Cliffhanger. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Stan Gordon, author of Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. The co-host is Christopher O'Brien. He's become a the, or our, or something like that. We're just playing with <laughs> phrases here. He's and the trickster. That's right. <laughs> the Irish trickster. Okay, so Thunderbirds, Stan. What, pray tell, is a Thunderbird? Well, Thunderbirds, this term has been given to these reportedly, generally very large birds, generally uh, dark in color, dark uh, black, dark brown, but with a just a huge wingspan that some people estimate to be 20 feet or more in length. And, of course, you know, just like with Bigfoot cases and other crypto cases we look into, some are turned out to be misidentification of other normal birds in the area. Like with Bigfoot, we've had some cases where it turned out to be bear or large shaggy dogs, things along that line. But some of these reports have been very interesting. I mean, there was uh, an incident that happened, I believe, about two years ago that one of my associates, Jim Brown, investigated down in Washington, D.A. It was an afternoon, beautiful afternoon, on a major highway when there's reportedly this huge, almost a, a huge bat-like, creature came down over top of vehicles with the estimated to be a 20-foot windspan. People stopped their cars, got out of their cars, and one man reportedly got out of the car and he was seen with a camera taking pictures of it, but whoever he was, he's never come forward. And uh, there have been other reports, uh, you know, even somewhat, like, we had a case in the, outside of Greensburg here several years ago where a gentleman claimed that he saw a huge bird about 60 feet above the, the truck and car traffic uh, going outside of the town. And uh, there have been many reports. I mean, historically, there's a lot of reports on what they call the Black Forest region of Pennsylvania. But it's not just there. They've been reported from all parts of the state. In fact, I don't have much information, but I just got a report of a possible one being seen here in Pennsylvania. I'm trying to get a hold of the man that sent me the information on it. And um, But by far, one of the most interesting, most detailed accounts happened actually in nearby West Virginia, which I mentioned here in the book. I interviewed this guy several times. He sent me a sketch of what he had drew, what he had seen. And this is one of the most detailed accounts that happened in the fall of 2007. 
And this gentleman was driving down the road, two-lane highway, around 8 o'clock in the morning, outside of Clendenin, West Virginia. And he said he's driving down the road when all of a sudden he had to hit his brakes because right in front of him is this huge bird only a few yards away, which is uh, feeding on some roadkill. And he said what startled him was the fact that this thing was so big. I mean, it stood at least four feet tall because its head extended over the roof line of his vehicle. And he said he, he got a very, very detailed look at this creature. He said that the head was featherless and separated from the rest of the body by a prominent yellowish-orange color of plumage. The body was basically uh, dark brown or black with feathers. The neck was long and crooked. The beak was appeared dark and was pretty large and long. The eyes were dark. He said that the, the legs were covered in feathers, but he could not see the feet. He believed, I believe, rather, he said they were pretty much bare. The chest of the uh, of the large bird, he said, was distinct that it was well-formed. But he said the most striking feature of all was a huge wingspan. And actually what he did, he went back afterwards and he measured the, the highway, and it was 21 feet across where the expansion of the uh, wings were apparent because it was so close to him. He said that the wings, as he remembered, they were like arms of a human that were attached. They had shoulders and a very muscular upper torso, and the wings were as if they were its arms. And he said they kind of stared at each other for a minute. Uh, he said he was somewhat in shock looking at this thing, and the, the bird became somewhat startled himself, itself, and it pulled its head back when it stared at him, and then it turned around in an awkward mat in a manner, tried to run off and as though trying to fly off, and it was jumping like from one foot to the other in a hopping manner with its wings flapping to gain speed to take off. And he said um, that when it it was moving its wings, that the wingtips actually stirred up the dust and the gravel on both sides of the road as it became airborne, flew up over the trees and was gone. And he said later he went and did some uh, research trying to find a bird that would look close. He said the closest thing he could find was a teratorn, which, of course, was an extinct bird. Yeah, is there any reason, though, to believe that this is anything other than a real creature that maybe we don't see too often because they stay away? Well, it could well be. It's just the fact that a 21-foot wingspan is just um, unbelievable. For any <laughs> no, well, it, it's kind of difficult unless it's hiding in the mountains somewhere or in the forest. Right, right. And, uh, and again, you know, it's not a case here where you, you think something half a mile away and you can misidentify it or, you know, not, prop or not properly judge the actual size. This was very, very close range. And there have been some other reports that are relatively close range as well. I mean, there was an incident that happened years ago. Uh, out here at the Westmoreland Mall, they had a store out here which sells tickets for different shows in the Pittsburgh area, like rock shows and whatever. So the kids, during the years ago, they used to line up all night long, stand in line, to get their tickets. Well, on this one particular night, I guess it was a clear moonlit night, and what I was told was it was a bunch of people out there standing around. All of a sudden, it was this big shadow came over top of them from the wooded area from behind the mall. This thing comes right over top of them, and they got a good look at this giant bird that they said the best thing they could describe was like a pterodactyl. And uh, they got a pretty good look at it, and they were pretty much shook up. <laughs> In looking at cases like this, do you see cases outside of Pennsylvania with similar creatures? Other than oh. Virginia, you were mentioning it before. Yeah, West Virginia. West Virginia. That was in West Virginia. Right. And uh, I think, Chris, Chris, have you not had some cases out your way of, of these giant birds? Yeah, I have, actually. Uh, right around, uh, it seems that they, the only places that I've um, had reports of them or stories uh, in most cases, I've only had actually one report, but 
I have been told stories that uh, indicate the, the border area between Colorado and New Mexico in the San Luis Valley um, cheated over to the east side of the valley is where um, these types of, of huge flying creatures, for lack of a better word, have been seen. And one actual report uh, from 86 uh, was a what was described as a 30 to 40 foot wingspan of a of a huge bird and it was described as almost like being a a bird but it seemed like it was like a hole in the sky which i found is a very interesting uh description that uh it it it, it appeared to be a negative space in the sky but it was you know silhouetted against a, a blue sky during the day but you couldn't really see any details on it it's almost like you could see the the flight feathers you could see the shape of the head the shape of the wings the shape of the tail but there was no detail it was almost like it was absorbing light and uh this this was an ex-Vietnam vet, trained observer. Uh, he, he had also two other witnesses with him when he when they saw this thing. And uh, there have been reports uh, around the Four Corners area uh, over the years of these large flying uh, birds. And of course, down in, in uh, south, Te- I think southwestern Texas, uh, in the last few years, there have been some reports of what you know people are describing as is similar to what you just described as uh, some sort of pterodactyl or pteranodon type type creature. So. There have been, yeah. And there have been a report in many other states as well enough, just for example, Texas, Illinois. And just several years ago, there was that big national news story about the pilot up in Alaska who had encountered this huge bird, which he said had about the same wingspan as the aircraft, the small aircraft he was flying. So they, these things are being seen uh, throughout the country and other parts of the world as well, something similar anyhow. Yeah, there's the famous ones in New Guinea that come down and, and are grave robbers that come down. They they have some sort of uh, luminescence. They actually give off light. And they, they're only seen basically during the night, and they fly down, and, and they they dig up graves, freshly uh, interned bodies and stuff. There's a monster quest, I think, did a, a very interesting segment uh, last season on these things. This is something that has, you know, if you if you do some research, which I have done into the Thunderbird phenomenon, David Hatcher Childress also has done quite a bit of research. These these types of legends are found worldwide, so it's, it's we're not dealing with something isolated. Uh, I think uh, to one one or two specific areas, this is a worldwide paranormal phenomenon, for lack of a better term. How far back in history can you find these cases? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd have to I'd have to kind of revisit my research on that. I, there are legendary uh, accounts. Uh, it all depends on how you define a case. Um, my definition of a case is a date and time and location. Uh, but rumors and stories uh, go back and you know all the way back into the in, probably into prehistory I would think because those are all traditions of these things in Native American cultures for instance that yeah. uh, that go back you know hundreds if not a thousand or plus years so this is uh, I think a very uh, prevalent uh, albeit very rare but uh, but prevalent uh, in terms of its proximity around the world there are these cases being reported one of the few places that I haven't seen many references uh, to Thunderbirds is South America for some reason. Um, I've not really encountered many, very few, if, if uh, any, reports or, or stories or legends of these things down there for some reason. Now, in terms of investigating something like this, you have the eyewitness reports, but how do you capture something with a 21-foot <laughs> wingspan? You know, it's not something I really want to do. I want to run far away if I saw one of these things. That, that's easy, Jane. Just just pull out your uh, friendly neighborhood uh, Stinger anti-aircraft uh, portable device. Yeah. 
it's it's probably the same way people are trying to deal with uh, catching an eight to nine foot tall Bigfoot type creature as well. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, remind our listeners that the largest bird that flies uh, is a California condor, which has a wingspan maybe of nine feet. Uh, most of the large ones are around eight feet. There may be one or two that are have a slightly larger wingspan. Which I have seen on numerous occasions up at the Grand Canyon. There's eight of them up there. And boy, when you see them, the first time I saw one, it flew 20 feet over my head. I was standing on the rim. I had no idea it was coming. And when it went over, I thought it was an airplane for a split second because it was so huge. And when they fly, their wings rarely flap. And when they catch a thermal, they don't, they can, their wings will be stock still for quite, quite a long time. So, you know, nine foot is impressive to see something, you know, over twice that size uh, to me would be quite quite an experience. I, I would love to see something like that, especially if I had a video camera in my hand. Well, if someone has that, maybe we'd get some answers here. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast you never know what's going to happen next We have Stan Gordon. He's author of a book called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. And with the Thunderbird phenomenon, we're covering something that's happening quite a ways around the world. One of the crazy theories that comes to me, of course, when we get into the paranormal realms, is whether, and maybe this is like the TV series Fringe, you know, where they see occasionally this other reality, that maybe we're seeing another reality where these things are front and center. And there was a TV show called Primeval of course, also on BBC, that had that same kind of shtick. In other words, being able to see something in an alternate reality. So is there anything to look at in terms of that? How do you even prove it? Well, you know, going back to the 1973 wave, which was just an incredible time to live through back in 1973 to 1974, which is going to be a topic of uh, my second book, which I've been working on these books for quite a while, and this other book hopefully will be out the next few months. It's going to be called Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Casebook, and it focuses on the events of 1973 and the 1974. It was just an amazing time to live through. And believe me, had I not been directly involved or hadn't lived through it myself, it would be very difficult for me to even accept some of what was going on. Yeah, but, well, I know uh, that feeling. <laughs> Exactly. And uh, would you like me to give you a little scenario, begin of what happened back in 73 and how it started? Please. Okay. Well, summer of 1973, there had been a lot of activity going on. As you remember, in 1973, in the fall of 73, the United States had this major wave of UFO activity going on across the country. There was a lot of reports going on in radio and TV at the time. But here in Pennsylvania, it actually started on January 1st, and, and it continued all year long across the state. We were very, very busy. Back then, I had my first research group, which was a Westmoreland County UFO study group. 
when I set this group up, it was my determination to try to set up a group, a, a fast response type of team of research people that would try to get to the scene of these events, hopefully while the phenomenon was ongoing or soon after, so the information was fresh. And uh, with my electronics background, we set up a two-way radio system where we were able to radio dispatch investigators to the scene in certain areas. So anyhow, how this all started was it was August the 7th, 73. I received a phone call from a relative of a person who had had an unusual event happen uh, outside of Greensburg in a rural area not far from the old Green Gate Mall area. And this fellow apparently had been in the hospital uh, since the time it happened. And uh, he had just gotten home that day, and they told me I need to contact him, and, which I did. And I went out to his house. The event actually happened on July 31st. That evening, it was a warm evening. He had his uh, window up in the bathroom. He was shaving because he was getting up early for work. And he was doing what he always did, and he happened to turn around, began to smell this funny odor first, kind of like a rotten cucumber, he told me. There were some dogs outside, and they weren't making any noise. But when he turned around to the window, here's these two large glowing red eyes looking at him in the window. But the window's eight feet off the ground. So he runs into the other room and yells some of the other family members, and they run in, and there's nothing in the window at that time, but they can smell the odd odor. So anyhow, uh, this guy had some history, I believe, of a heart condition. I guess he was taken to the uh, hospital in the ambulance and was out in there for a while. So anyhow, I went out to interview him that same day, August the 7th, and he told me about his experience. He seemed very sincere, still very, very upset. While we're there, I learned from his wife that some of the the local boys had uh, a number of weeks before been taking a, was taking a shortcut over to the mall through the wooded area, and they had an odd experience. What I was told was that they were walking down uh, the road, heard some noise to the left, thought it was a deer in the in the bushes over there, started throwing some rocks in, and instead of a deer coming out, here comes this very large, hairy, man-like, upright creature, walked across the road with a long stride, very long arms, and went up behind the hill, up behind these people's home. Well, luckily, some of those boys were around the area, and I got to talk to them that day. They told them about their experience, and I said to them, well, you mind if I go up and look on your property up around the hill? And they said, sure, go ahead. So some of the boys wanted to accompany me up there, and they did. And we walked around there for a while, looked around, didn't really see much of anything. I'm just getting ready to leave when I happen to look down, and right there on the ground is the strangest footprint I had ever seen. The kids were just amazed. Like they couldn't believe what they were seeing either. I got on the radio, called one of my other associates. They brought out some uh, casting material, and uh, we took photographs and measurements, made a cast of that cast, which was a three-toed footprint, 13 inches long and 8 inches wide. Did yeah. they volunteer to take you out there, or, or did you ask to be taken out there? I asked did, to be taken out. They had yes, no idea that, I was going to go That's important. That, being, oh, it being is a, important. Yeah, very important, because they did not volunteer to take you to the spot, which indicates to me that it wasn't a hoax. Oh, definitely. Well, the point was, I didn't even know anything about this till I got there, and the, and the boys came later. The mother, the parents were telling me about the story first. I had no idea when I got there anything about the second event. And then we went up there and looked around, and I mean, you could tell they were all pretty startled, pretty shook up seeing that footprint. Anyhow, as I said, we looked around. While I'm out in the field, we get a radio report to one of my other investigators from up in Beaver County, north of Pittsburgh, almost to the Ohio line, that same morning, was investigating an incident where a man up in a trailer had seen this large creature with glowing eyes, I remember, looking in the window. And they, the police had found some large, strange footprints up there. So that was this beginning of this series of events that began to occur. And, you know, historically, 
you, you get these reports of, of a Bigfoot sighting in one particular area, and, and sometimes it makes some news. But what happened here was it wasn't just one localized small area. This was taking place over seven counties in western Pennsylvania. And then down at the same time, down around Lancaster, in the eastern part of the state, in the Pennsylvania Dutch country, the farmers down there were reporting similar activity as well. And there were multitudes of these creature cases. I mean, I, my phone and my radio room here were being monitored 24 hours a day with, with calls coming in. It was unbelievable. I mean, I had two phone lines operating at the time for the calls coming in, and at least twice in one week, as I recall, the system went down. The phone company said they'd never seen it like it before from the overload of calls coming in. Couldn't handle all the calls back in 1960 or rather wow. 1973. We had teams going out 24 hours a day. I mean, we were out in the middle of no man's land 2, 3 o'clock in the morning where people were seeing these things. Many of these were also daylight sightings. And when I tell you some people were within 10 feet of some of these things, that's what some of the reports were. It was just incredible. And there were many, many good sightings, plus the fact that back then a lot of the calls were initially coming in first to the, either the news media or the police departments who quite often were referring the calls over us to investigate. So in some cases you had the local or state police investigate some of the cases as well. And it was just an amazing time. But what was so intriguing is that in so many of these cases, we were out there within minutes to hours after they occurred. You, you saw the emotion of the witnesses. People very, very upset. I mean, sometimes men out there shaking with guns in their hands. At least two cases I can recall where people actually took clothing and left their, their homes for a period of time because they were so shocked by what they saw. In a lot of cases, various types of physical evidence, not just you know, just footprints, but sometimes other physical evidence, the indication of something moving through the area, you know, broken down brush or things like that. One case was amazing where something, this creature was being chased, as I recall. We didn't get the word on this until uh, sometime later, unfortunately, but um, went through a, a grove of pine trees and was apparently just pulling these small pine trees out as it was walking through. We do have some pictures of those uprooted pine trees. And... It, it was just an amazing time, I can tell you, back in 1973. Oh, but, I remember I was working at a radio station in southeast Pennsylvania at the time, and we were getting all sorts of reports. What occurs to me here is the CSI viewpoint of 2010. We've got all this forensic evidence. Has anyone thought of getting DNA sampling testing to see what they could learn about all these samples? Well, you got to remember back in 73, we didn't have access to a lot of that information back then. But we did uh, have some samples. And back then, you had Ivan Sanderson's uh, group that he had formed called the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, SITU up in New Jersey. And they had some consultants, some pretty good scientific consultants back then. But everybody was limited to the capabilities of that time. And we did send off some samples, and I can tell you about some of the stories, and they'll be mentioned in the book coming up, uh, Silent Invasion. But the, the only one sample that was kind of interesting, and again, these things are all apparently destroyed because none of them were ever returned, none of the samples we sent out. But most of the samples they were able to identify. But there was yes, one but the thing I'm asking here is, yes, we know about technology in 1973. But today, do you have any samples left that you can analyze using today's scientific techniques? Unfortunately not. Nope. Because we gave up pretty much everything we had back at that time, so we do not. And it was a limited amount of what we did have back then. What about the official response? You got calls from the state police and everyone else, you know, we don't want to deal with this. You figure it out. Was there ever an official explanation for any of this stuff? Uh, 
no official explanation, but I, I can tell you even the number of newspaper stories that talked about investigation of different police departments at the time, even cases where you had police officers and witnesses in some cases across the state with some of the UFO cases, while there was no official explanation, there was nothing that I can recall most of those cases where they you know, said they were hoaxes either. I, and I can tell you, and I can give you detail of some of the really intriguing cases, because your question was about some of the unusual aspects. Could there be a physical and non-physical aspect to some of these cases? And I can tell you, as we went into those reports in 1973, we were very open-minded. Our position was to seek out the information where the evidence led us to. Initially, as we're going in, we're thinking, well, as many people thought before, we appear to be initially dealing with some type of unknown primates. But as time went on and months went on and more reports came in, we began to get some very unusual reports from the general public. And these were not people who had an interest in UFOs or big thing like that in particular. And just a couple of them I can tell you about. One was a case happened in September up in Beaver County where uh, two uh, young ladies were waiting for a friend to pick them up. They were standing outside in this rural area. And all of a sudden this huge white, white-colored, hairy Bigfoot creature comes running uh. across through that area. Seeing the creature alone was unusual, but what was most fascinating was it was carrying a small glowing sphere in its one hand, a sphere of light. So it's running into this wooded area, and a short time later, this object comes over, which at first they thought it was an aircraft, but it moves over the area slowly, and it projects a beam of light down into the woods where the creature had run into. So that was a very interesting case. Like, what, what are we dealing with here? And then we had that classic case, which I'm sure you have heard about, and I've talked about many times, and it will be detailed in the book, which occurred October 25, 1973, up again in Fayette County, a sunny Union town. I got a call from the state trooper up there, the investigating officer around uh, that right after he came back from the investigation after he was interviewed as well about it. And just briefly, without going into all the details, this happened uh, about 9 o'clock that evening. There's about 15 people in a small rural community out there that see this large, about as big as a barn, a red sphere of light dropping from the sky slowly towards the pasture. Well, the farmer son, who's quite a big fella, and two neighbor boys decided they were going to go up to investigate. So the farmer's son goes into his dad's house, and they, he grabs a .30-06, some uh, ammunition, which included some tracer rounds. And he and the two fellows go uh, down this little farm road up towards the pasture. They left the lights on in the truck to help light their way. It was dark, of course. And they noticed that it looked like the, the power was draining in the truck. The lights were uh, the bright lights were getting uh, much darker than they should have been, and as though somebody was draining the power. They go up to the field, and as they get up there, they're amazed to see this huge object, which is not round anymore. It's like a half of a dome, but it's now bright white. It's illuminating the whole area. It's approximately about 250 feet away, as I recall, and it's making this real high-pitched humming sound. They said it was like a loud lawnmower. But as they're going up to that area, they also hear like these baby crying sounds. So they get up to the top of the field, and they're watching this thing, and they're all pretty shook up, and the one boy is very, very shook up already. But then they notice about 75 feet away along this fence line are these two tall figures slowly moving in their direction. Well, they thought at first they were bare, and they realize these things are bipedal. They're very tall ones, maybe eight foot tall or so. The other ones maybe around seven foot tall. They have long, matted hair. The arms are down past the knees, almost at the ground. They're walking upright, one behind the other along this fence. They have glowing, luminous green eyes. 
there's this funny smell in the air like burning rubber, and they're making these baby crying sounds. Well, the one kid is yelling the other guy, shoot him, shoot him. He's getting very upset. He finally <laughs> runs out of the field and goes home. So finally the, the fella uh, fires towards the, the creatures. He, did, he had a tracer around him, so it was just a flash of light. He fires a second one, which is also a tracer. When he fires that second tracer, the larger of the two creatures reaches out as though to grab that tracer. And at the moment it does that, the object in the field vanishes. It doesn't take off. It's gone. It disappears. The sound stops. The light goes out. It's no longer there. At that point, the creatures turn around slowly, start walking back along the fence line, back towards the woods from where they came. The fellow now is firing live ammo right into them. And he said, I'm a hunter. I know I hit that larger creature. But it, it didn't even indicate it was hurt. They just kept moving slowly back away from them. They got out of the woods, they ran back to the home, they told the family what happened, they took them to a neighbor's home, they called the state police. About 45 minutes later, the trooper arrives on the scene, I'm here to investigate the flying saucer, and the witness said, you know, forget about it, you can think I'm nuts, and the trooper said, we had a report of two similar creatures up on the mountain the night before, I had to investigate them. So they go up in the patrol car, up into the pasture, up into the field, as a trooper had told me, they go over to the area where the object had been on the ground. And he said that whole area appeared to be self-luminescent and glowing, about 100, 150 feet in diameter. Wow, the farm animals, Yeah, the farm animals wouldn't go anywhere into it. He, they said you know, the light from it was bright enough that if he sat down within it, he could read a newspaper from, what, from the light coming off of it. And there's a lot more to the story. But anyhow, the trooper... And the other guy finally go back to the state police barracks. When they get back there, they're both separately taken to two different rooms, but the trooper and the other guy are interviewed by other troopers. After they're done, the trooper calls me and he says, I think that there's a possibility something is still up here. You need to get up here as soon as you can with a team. So we were quite a distance away. It took a little time to get our team together, get our equipment and stuff together. But we got up there early morning hours, and uh, by the time we got there, the, the luminous area was no longer luminous. The animals still wouldn't go anywhere near it, and uh, there were some other things that happened which are very interesting, but too long to get into right now, too detailed. Did you collect any plant, plant and soil samples by, by chance? Back then, there was we did not at that time, I, and, I, and I can't say for sure. I don't believe we did, and there was a lot more that was going on there, which very unusual things that were happening involving the witness at the time. In fact, we had Dr. Schwartz come in, uh, Dr. Schwartz who made Berthold Schwartz, who very, was very, very well known in the field uh, and right. still has written several books. He was in New Jersey at the time, and actually he came up here and spent a week up here with the people involved. And there were some circumstances at the time that uh, we just weren't, weren't able to follow through like we generally would have done that I can recall in that particular thing. I don't recall any samples being taken that I recall. But no, what, um, what you're describing, what you're describing, really does sound like a paraphysical event as opposed to something, uh, you know, nuts and bolts. I, I mean, there may be a nuts and bolts element or 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 quality to the to the report and, and to the experience. But the, the fact that the object vanished and that right. these creatures were not recoiling from being hit by a thirty odd six round or two or three would suggest right. to me that there's some sort of dimensional thing going on or something paraphysical going on. Now, what what distance away was this particular event from the event where the Bigfoot was seen with the glowing ball of light and then the subsequent uh, flyover with the, the object shooting down the beam of light into oh, the that woods? Was, that was quite a distance away. Um, this was What's, a, what was this the time proximity, though? Yeah, oh, how, how I'm close gonna, in time? Yeah, just top of my head, maybe... 
I'm guessing 70, 80 miles, 90 miles, somewhere around there, approximately maybe more. What, how about time proximity? What, what was the timing on, on the two events? Oh, oh, this, the one that happened up in, uh, the one with the glowing sphere will happen on September 27th. This is October 25th. Okay, so within a month of, of one another. Very oh, yeah, and there was a lot of stuff. And then, at, if you, the, the other story that's most fascinating, which gives you a better glimpse of what we might be dealing with, happened February 6th of 1974 in that same county, but not in that same general area. And uh, it's probably one of the most fascinating cases we, we've ever had. And we'll talk about it, by the way, in part two of this episode. Stan Gordon, tell our listeners where they can find more about the things that you do. Well, uh, people can get an autographed copy of the book, Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, by going to www.stangordon.info, I-N-F-O. And uh, they can go to their website and get uh, current information, and they can also order the book. And also they can obtain a copy of my uh, award-winning video, Kecksburg, The Untold Story, which is also on DVD. Mm, but you're not going to do a Blu-ray version. There's no high definition. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> we'll have Stan Gordon with co-host Christopher O'Brien coming up on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We continue with Stan Gordon. He is a longtime paranormal researcher, started when he was a teenager, as many of us did, author of a new book called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. And we're finding that the really mysterious aspect doesn't just cover Pennsylvania, but a wide portion of the world. Christopher O'Brien is our co-host. Before we broke for the halfway point, Stan, you were about to start with another case history. Can you continue, please? And Gene, by the way, I actually started when I was 10 years old back in 1959, so I'm approaching 51 years this year that I've been doing this investigation, and I've never had a UFO or Bigfoot sighting myself. And as Steve Allen once said, you must be very tired. <laughs> Some days I am, let me tell you. You know, going back to this events of 73, and again, going into this open-mindedly, looking into all aspects of what we're dealing with these creature reports, and I still keep an open mind today because we don't have any definitive answers as to what really was going on or what the phenomena really is revealing to us at this point. But we had these unusual reports, and we had incidents out there where, for example, we had trails of footprints that just suddenly stopped and vanished when there should have been more footprints. A lot of other mysterious events that happened during this wave in 73 and 74. And by far, probably the most interesting case that came up that makes us begin to wonder exactly what we're dealing with happened February 6th of 1974. Now, those people who were living back at that time, you'll remember that time period because there was a national trucker strike going on, there was gas rationing happening, and there was some violence on the highways. So here in Pennsylvania, you had both the state police and the National Guard patrolling together. So on this event, both the state police and National Guardsmen responded to this incident. This happened up towards the Ohio pile, Fayette County, way, way up in the mountains, way out in the sticks. And what we learned was 
that this woman who lived out in the country all her life, knew the animals, wasn't pretty much afraid of anything, lived in this little cabin out there. Her uh, daughter and son-in-law and family lived about 100 feet away from them in another dwelling. And anyhow, she was in her house that night just doing what she normally does, and she heard some noise out on her porch. She had some garbage out there, and there was some... Uh, garbage cans or so tin cans and she heard the tin cans rattling there had been a pack of wild dogs have been coming through that area recently she figured the dogs were back so she loads up her shotgun and she's going to open up the door and her idea was to fire over the head of the dogs and scare the dogs away so she loads up the shotgun she turns on the porch light she opens the door she steps out and instead of the dogs being there just a few feet away directly in front of her is this huge hairy creature and I remember exactly what she told me. She said it looked like a great big hairy ape with its arms straight up over its head. And what should she do? She fires right into it. And she said there was a bright flash of light, like somebody took a picture with a camera, she said to me, and it vanished right in front of her. It was gone. Now, the people 100 feet away heard the gunshot, called and asked her what's going on. So she told them what happened. So the son-in-law grabs his pistol, and he makes his way up towards the house. And what he said was that... He was surrounded by four or five hairy beings with glowing red eyes like coals of fire. And he started shooting randomly at them and ran into the house. And when they looked out the window, above the trees, there's this large object. They said like a big Christmas ornament with different color lights on hovering over the trees at the same time. So they called the state police. And by the time the state police got out there, of course, whatever was there was gone. But... I got, we couldn't get up here the next morning. Uh, I went up there with my one of my associate investigators. We got up to the scene. We met another uh, animal enforcement officer up there, and uh, we talked to the people involved, and very, very upset over what happened the night before, talked to the witness involved. And, in fact, when we went out there with the uh, looking through the trees and the woods out there, right in line where she had shot at this creature, we found that BB pattern in the trees out there. And anyhow, if this case is real, and there was actually no reason to doubt that these people were telling us what they believed to be true, I mean, why would you make up such a story? Then it leads us to wonder, you know, what exactly are we dealing with? You know, I, I've investigated hundreds of Bigfoot sightings here in Pennsylvania over the years and talked to a lot of very, very credible people. I mean, just like with UFOs, you have police officers, you know, you have uh, all kind of people, all kind of backgrounds, young children, adults, males, females. And majority of these people don't want any publicity. They're not out trying to seek anything. Most of them have been extremely shook up by the experience. I mean, I've been in touch with some people from 20 years ago or more who had a Bigfoot sighting, and today they're still shook up over, and they still don't want to deal with what they experienced. Why would you make up such a story? So the thing is, and I've always said this for years, and it's like the skeptics say, if these creatures are really out there and the, and the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming, that there is something out there people are seeing. The question is, as the skeptics say, why haven't we found any bodies? Why has somebody hit one with a car? Why haven't we found any bones in the woods? And, of course, there's a lot of theories on this, but it just doesn't make all, a lot of sense with all the reports. Just in Pennsylvania alone, not to look at all the reports throughout the country and throughout the world of something similar. Okay, now, well, that is the question that maybe we should be exploring right now for a few moments, Stan. Okay, why isn't there more evidence if we have this flurry of cases in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, strange creatures, Thunderbirds, Bigfoot, Littlefoot, whatever. Where is all the evidence of their existence? Why are they here and not here? 
Well, this is what I've been saying myself. You look at the case like that. You look at some of the other cases we had that we've looked at over the years. Some of these things that happened, especially during this wave in 73, which makes one wonder if we're dealing with something that has a physical and a non-physical aspect to it. Why is there not more physical evidence? Probably the best evidence we saw at the scene at some of these events, including this one up in Ohio Pile, which I didn't see, but I interviewed the, the investigating state trooper who was there, and he said to me, what was so amazing when he got to the scene was how the animals were responding. And this is something we've seen in different cases, especially with dogs, at some of these Bigfoot cases, where when these creatures are close to the dogs, they are just like paralyzed in fear. They won't bark. They're shaking. They won't move. Sometimes this goes on for, you know, a day or more, depending on the circumstance. Sometimes they won't even eat properly for two or three days later. And other people reported in some of the cases you had other types of cattle, horses, cats inside of people's homes, like hiding underneath the beds and acting the way that generally normally would. I remember in this particular case, I believe there was a ba I think in this case there was a young baby in the house. People were saying how unusual, upset that baby was that night, which the baby never reacted like that before. So... Again, I keep an open mind to all aspects of the Bigfoot phenomenon other and other types of crypto cases, but I think we cannot exclude the possibility that at least in some of these type of reports, I'm not saying all species are like this, but we may be dealing with something that has a physical and a non-physical aspect to it. You mentioned the dogs. Of course, dogs, other animals being sensitive to things that we can't see or hear. Have you taken canine friends with you on these investigations to see what they can detect? I can tell you, in most cases, we did not, only because we didn't have the capability, we didn't have the dogs to do it back then. Uh, so I don't recall that. There could have been some individual investigators. I do remember this. Uh, one of the investigators who went out on a case which was significant in another county where there had been a report of a creature, I believe, on the roof of a, of a low-level house where the thing had caught up on the roof, and there were some hair samples that were pretty significant. And that was the one hair sample I think I started to talk to you about, and we got sidetracked, that it was the one case where they said it was near human but couldn't be identified for sure as human, while other hairs could easily be identified. And when he took it home and his dog took, smelled that hair, the dog was just like cowering and very, very upset when it smelled that hair, he said. Oh, wow, interesting. I used to take uh, my brother's Pyrenees out of my cattle mutilation cases. Uh, absolutely, it just you could not freak this dog out. It was absolutely implacable, if that's the proper word. And one of the things that, uh, that we noticed right off was uh, as soon as he would be introduced to the scene, and always we would introduce the dog to the, to the scene uh, first before we entered it, uh, near the animal. If there had been any sort of uh, coyotes uh, in the area, he would instantly go and identify where the coyotes had urinated because he would then urinate too. So dogs are, are very good uh, investigative uh, partners. And they yeah. also mark their territory first. Well, they also... Let those coyotes interfere or intrude on my territory. Well, when you're when you're investigating unusual livestock uh, deaths uh, and disfigurements, uh, it's really good to know if the coyotes have been in the, around the scene. Most of the cases that we had, coyotes would not venture within 100 feet, uh, 200 feet of a case, and they would circle around the outside in a and kind of like checking it out, but not going near it. Before so anyway, I'm sorry to about the meaning with all these cases and what they signify. I mentioned during a brief intermission with Stan, how about more recent cases? You know, we know a lot happened in the 70s. 
And certainly, as I said, I lived in Pennsylvania. I remember just everything happening every day. I'd hear about something somewhere. But now we're in 2010. And are we still getting a fair number of UFO and strange creature reports in your state, Stan? Yeah. Oh, yes. Last year was a very active year. Yeah, very uh, 2009. The information that I obtained uh, from various sources on mail came from 48 counties of Pennsylvania last year. And there was uh, quite a bit of Bigfoot activity going on. I know uh, I had a number of reports. Uh, Eric Altman at the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, they investigated a number of cases. I think one of the most interesting cases that um, the PBS had called me to uh, join their group to uh, investigate the case. And this happened uh, again. Here we go, Fayette County again, another area with a long history of Bigfoot activity. This happened on July 10th last year. And this was daylight, about 6 in the afternoon. It was a very warm, clear, beautiful day, as I recall. And the the woman was driving down the road about 35, 40 miles an hour uh, on this two-lane road outside of uh, Uniontown again, when out of the corner of her left eye, she caught uh, a figure moving from the left side and approaching as though it was going to walk right up in front of her car. So what does she do? Her first reaction is she swerves to miss hitting this person walking out right in front of her vehicle. But as she's turning, she's looking up and realizes this is not a person. This is some kind of a very strange creature. And she sat there. When she pulled over to the curb, she sat there for a minute, and she looks into her rearview mirror to watch as this large, hairy creature leaps across the trunk of her vehicle. And while she's sitting there trying to compose herself, trying to figure out what's going on, next thing she knows, she looks to her right, about 75 feet away to the right, the creature is running down this road in the opposite direction, which if it kept going, it would have gone through a large, like a field area, up into the mountainous area, up towards Jamonville, which has had a long history of a lot of strange creature encounters up there going back to the 70s. Anyhow, what she said she saw when she swerved to miss uh, hitting this creature, she said that this thing was at least six feet tall, six feet or more in height, that it was upright on two legs. It was a little hard to see the neck because of the hair to explain it, she said, but she could see some details to it. The, the head was fairly big and the, and the shoulders were very wide. And she said there was hair coming out from all over the face like that of a dog or a wolf. The nose was flat and dark. Uh, she really couldn't see much of the mouth area, nor could she see any ears, but she said the most prominent features were the eyes, and she said the eyes were what really grew, drew her attention, that they kind of unnerved her, that they were at least twice the size of a human, circular in shape, but the eyes were dark, possibly black in color, and she said they were just wild looking. There was no iris, no whites, and they were just very, very strange looking. It was stocky and muscular. The chest area was thick and hairy. The shoulders were wide and rounded. The arms were very long and, and hanging down, uh, you know, from the body down beyond the knees. And um, the hair was long on the arms, like like ape hair, she said. And she got a, a pretty good you know, description of this thing. And we went out and interviewed her and her husband. Uh, appeared to be very credible people. She was still, you could tell when she was describing this, to um, Dave Dragason, who was the artist who was there from the uh, PBS, and we were interviewing her, you could tell she was still very emotional over what was going on. And when I'm looking over their vehicle, I was talking to them, and I went over, and just like I was looking around on their vehicle, and I was checking real close, and I noticed as I was examining around the trunk here on the opposite side on the left, this really unusual uh, affected scratch area. And that area was about six inches from the left tail light to the first uh, striation of the scratches. And it was about eight and a half inches long and two inches wide, but there were 
many, many, like vertical and horizontal, very thin scratch lines that went into the paint surface. And I showed it to these people and said, we've never seen anything like that before. We didn't even notice that. And that would have been right in the area where the thing probably would have made contact as it went over the back of the truck. Now, we can't say for sure it's associated with it, but uh, it was kind of interesting. But uh, I believe the woman was very sincere when she described what she was seeing. Hey, neighbors. Would you like to see the PowerCast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the Paracast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Co-host is Christopher O'Brien. We have Stan Gordon. He is the author of Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. And Chris was about to enlighten us on another case, please. I find it very intriguing. It's it's quite similar to another case I think you had in in March '97, where a guy had a Bigfoot leaning on on his trunk, looking in his back window. He took off, and the creature. Uh, Left some. Uh, there's a photograph in your book. Left some very impressive scratch marks. And well, that was that was a very very unusual case. Okay, and it was a long involved case. I'll, I'll try to explain it to you briefly. I, I remember getting the call very early morning hours, on March 12, 1997. This happened just a short time before, around three o'clock in the morning. Now this again is Derry Township. Now Derry Township is. Uh, a rural community along the base of the Chestnut Ridge, again, outside of Latro, PA. Historically, a lot of weird activity out there with Bigfoot UFO cases, Bigfoot in particular. Uh, there's been sightings since then. Uh, there have been many sightings going back to the, at least the 1950s, I have on record from out in that area. But, of course, that 73 wave was very active in that area as well. So, anyhow, I get this call from this fellow who told me that him and two other fellows had had a very unusual uh, experience that early that morning. So what I found out was these guys, they work at night. They were riding down this back road when all of a sudden the hub, hubcap came off of the vehicle, rolled across the road into this field where there's some old cars. So... They, um, short time later, they went back there to look for the missing hubcap, but there wasn't any place to park real close, so they parked about 200, 250 feet away from that particular area. One of the fellows stayed in the vehicle. The other two men decided to go down and look around, and as they're looking around down there, they hear this sound that says something like metal-on-metal metal sound, and as they're walking along, they hear like this loud growling, like from a dog somewhere in the area. So they're moving around slowly, thinking maybe there's a guard dog or something around here, and as they're walking along, all of a sudden, one of the fellows notices a movement ahead of him. And he uh, aimed the flashlight in that direction. Well, at that point, both of the men are pretty much startled because what they're seeing is not a dog, but what they describe as a huge, about a nine-foot-tall, ape-like creature covered with white hair, which was bent down and was now beginning to rise from the ground. The one man is panicked right away, and he just runs out of there. The other guy said he stood there for several seconds just looking at this thing, trying to figure out what it is, and he, and he runs back to the vehicle. As they're pulling away from there, the one fella realizes that he had dropped his dad's expensive knife and also some keys. So he was pretty concerned about that, but as they passed that area, 
uh, went back past that area from where they had parked. They didn't see the creature. They moved around a little slower, tried to find the missing items, but they didn't see them anywhere. So anyhow, here's what next happened was kind of unusual. As they're driving down this little road, all of a sudden, this this nice new red silver Chevy dually, big Chevy dual wheel truck, passes them in the opposite direction at a high rate of speed. And the fellows watch as this truck pulled onto a side road, turned around, and began to follow after them down the road. And this Chevy dually increases its speed and it comes right up behind them and stayed with them for, they said, about almost about a half a mile. And everybody in that vehicle, those three guys, said they had the impression that whoever was in that dually was trying to get their license number. So anyhow, that truck finally stops on the roadway, starts backing up, turns off its lights, and backs up to a side road, and that's it. Well, anyhow, they go to the closest uh, residence of the three fellows, and they go over there and they sit down and they talk about what happened. Well, as they discuss this, they're like, they can't believe what they saw. Only two out of three saw the creature. The two fellows are intrigued. They're scared, but they're intrigued and want to know what this thing was. So they decide, well, they need to go back in that area and look around for the keys and the uh, the knife anyhow. So the other guy has a has a real, had a nice car that he had souped up with a modified high-speed engine in it. And they decided to go back in that vehicle. And the fellows had a uh, modified automobile headlight that they had converted over to use into a uh, like a, a cigarette light or adapter so they can use for a big spotlight. So they took that with them. So they get down into the area, and they plug in the spotlight, and they start shining around that field and around those old vehicles. And they said, all of a sudden, a short-time liner, here comes the creature again. And they said, as one witness told me, he said, we were antagonizing this thing. We kept hitting the beam at the creature. It kept putting its hands up in front of its eyes to block uh, the bright light coming into it. And it was getting very, very upset. He said, we were doing the antagonizing, you could tell. And it's got to be nice point, to Bigfoot Day, right? So it reminds me of that beef jerky commercial that they've been airing with the guys uh, messing with Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, here's this huge white hairy creature. It's walking upright. It's on two legs, and it began to chase after their vehicle. And they said it, it moved very fast, got up to within about three feet of the rear bumper when they were they put on some speed and got away from it. So anyhow, that's the next part of the story. Now, what happens is, the guy who has that car who had lost the keys and the knife, a little later that evening after he took another fellow home to his house, decides he needs to go back out there again to see if he can find the missing items. So he, he goes around there. He, he has his lights uh, down low, I believe. Anyhow, he's looking around, but he doesn't see this creature. So he slowly looks around, and he pulls up, and he's driving around there, and he leans down, and I believe it, he sees the, uh, I think it's the knife that he saw. And um, so anyhow, he just grabs the knife, and he opens the door, never gets out, just grabs the knife. And all of a sudden, he feels this heavy thump, heavy thud on the rear of his vehicle. And he looks up into the rear mirror, and he's shocked to see here's this big, hairy, white creature now leaning on the back of his car, peering at him through the rear window. And he said, the eyes seemed to be have a reddish glow, but he did tell me later, he thought, maybe that was from the brake lights reflecting, but he wasn't sure. And he's trying, he's gassing the vehicle, he's trying to get out of there, but the weight of this thing, he couldn't move the car. And he said he kept gassing and hitting the gas, and he said his tailpipes are just really, really whistling now. They're really, really loud. It's hurting his ears, and it keeps whistling louder, and he thinks finally at one point, he thinks it was the sound that finally caused the creature to release uh, itself from the vehicle. He gets out of the car, kind of turns sideways. He finally gets it on the road. He goes down the road, 
he's uh, pretty upset at the time, and um, he finds that there's a little, one of those little 24-hour little restaurant, or I should say like a a gas station, uh, convenience store, and he's in there, I believe, getting a coffee or whatever, and he's watching his car the whole time, and he said, short time later, um, another car pulls up several this is a short distance from where he had parked, and the several teenagers get out there admiring his car, and they never touched it. And he went outside, and they were talking about the car, and one of them said something like, did you get attacked by an animal or some kind of a bear or something? And he said, what do you mean? And he looked, and there on the back of the vehicle were these deep, what appeared to be claw marks deep into the patent metal on the rear of the vehicle, which there's a picture of it in the book. And what the body shop would say when they do the estimate. Well, this is what the guy said to me. He said, how am I supposed to call my insurance man and tell him I got attacked by a strange, <laughs> white, hairy creature? You know, and I mean, why would you go, if you're going to hoax this thing, why would you go and, and destroy your really nice car that you really thought a lot about and put a lot of money into? Okay, so anyhow, the rest of the story is I get a hold of these guys, and I said, I want to meet with you guys as soon as I can today. So we made arrangements to meet with them, to go out to the scene, interview them, take photographs, everything we could to document the information. So anyhow, I, I talked to several of them on my phone, made arrangements to meet with them, and I guess it was later in the day, as I recall, the witness who had shined the spotlight on the creature who had gotten a very good look at it, I found out later that he was a little upset and he, he was kind of not really wanting to talk to me. And I said, well, what's going on? We, everything was fine. And his other friend, which the guy later did let me interview him and he verified, he said that after I had talked to him on the phone early that morning, he said about 10 minutes later, he received another phone call. And the phone, what he could remember from the message was on the phone, the voice said something like, this is field agent so-and-so from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. About the incident last night, forget about what you saw, and I strongly suggest you don't talk any further with Stan Gordon. Sounds like MIB is afoot. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to point out, there's no way we've ever been able to verify that it was actually the FBI involved. I did send them a letter. I never did receive a response, so I have no idea who it was. Now, the other fellow, the other guy who had the nice car, he's still with his parents. And according to him, he wasn't home at the time, but he did get some kind of a phone message. But also, he said there was um, four men, each in two vehicles, which I believe were Chevy Caprices, they pulled up to the family, told them they want to talk to him, and but they apparently never came back again. And so the whole question is, how did anybody find out about the event? I mean, I was the only one who knew about it. It was early morning hours, so either somebody was monitoring my phone calls or somebody, through tracing that license, was following up on somebody involved. But it was a very interesting case, and, I mean, I've always thought that these guys were believed to be telling the truth as they were you know, letting us know about it. That's really wild. Two cases with Bigfoot scratching people's uh, trunks. I love it. That's amazing. Uh, that's that's pretty rare. You don't get that kind of uh, physical evidence and uh, descriptions, uh, especially so close after the event. That's one thing, Stan, I must say, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm stroking you here, but I, but I really am. I mean, you know, almost every case that you're describing, you are on site either, you know, as, as quickly as possible or the following day. And that, you know, for all you aspiring field investigators out there, the only way that Stan can do this is to have an extensive network of, of, of contacts in law enforcement, people around uh, his, his state and, and regions that are they're constantly monitoring activity and, and having a really well-established, well-oiled phone tree going 
so that people are 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 dispatched immediately to these cases and and this is really important as he mentioned earlier if you get on site right after an event you're going to be able to really get uh, an emotional um, read on, on a person that has uh, allegedly had a strange experience. If you arrive at a place that has this incredible uh, report attached to it and the person is nonchalant, uh, it kind of makes you wonder, wow, maybe there's uh, not something to it. But if the person obviously is, is exhibiting emotional trauma or the effects of, of, a, of a highly strange experience, it impacts you emotionally. And so this is really, this is really important. And I think, you know, being out in the field, uh, you know, for decades, I mean, Stan, uh, Stan knows that, uh, this is a really important element. And, and we do, uh, really urge, uh, aspiring field investigators to, to really jump on these cases, uh, if possible and get on site as quickly as possible. There's no substitute for that. secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast never know what's going to happen next. We have Stan Gordon, author of Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, our co-host, who's also been out there on the scene investigating cases, Christopher O'Brien. So guys, either one of you, take this up. How do we train investigators to go out there and know what to do, what equipment they need, etc.? Do they take the one-hour course from UFON? What? <laughs> well, I can tell you. My groups, I started my first group back in 1970. That was the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. By 1975, we were receiving such a big input of information from across the state that I changed the name of the group to the Pennsylvania Center for UFO Research. And then in 1981, I found another group called PASU, the Pennsylvania Association for the Study of the Unexplained, which continued in operation until 1993. Since then, I've been investigating on my own. It just, you know, I had hundreds of people involved. We were very active. I mean, it was like a second job, but I was paying for it out of my own pocket pretty much and uh, worked full-time as I still do today. But, you know, talk about training. See, what I wanted to do when I got organized back in those early days of 1970, I knew that when I set my hotline up in 1969 for the public and I began to get inundated with phone calls on all kinds of strange phenomena, I knew this was much more than I could handle on my own. I knew that I needed research people. I needed specialists, scientists, engineers, technicians, all kinds of specialists to evaluate these cases. That was my goal, to set up a volunteer group of people, and that's what I did. Slowly but surely, I began to make contact with colleges, with uh, companies that had laboratories in the Pittsburgh area, and I, and I began to gain all these kind of specialists. It was amazing that the quality and type of people I had for years and years, many of which did it anonymously because of their position. And I had a lot of former military people, former people working military intelligence, 
We had uh, people involved in law enforcement, and we set up our, our own investigative training courses. I mean, we, we took guys out in the field. We taught them how to interview, how to properly interview people, not to, not to lead people into the information. We taught them how to make castings, how to take measurements, how to gather samples for laboratory analysis. So we did a lot of training in our own groups that you know most people didn't have back in those days. Back then, we even worked with the, the, the county civil defense where um, they, you know, we worked very closely with them, and we trained a number of our people as radiological monitors. And we had radiation gear. We had magnetic detectors. We had a lot of radio equipment. We had a lot of stuff that we all had as individuals. Again, we all pay for this stuff out of our own pockets. But also because of the type of people I have involved in those groups, a lot of these guys built their own equipment. So we had access to a lot of really interesting stuff that was, you know, pretty high tech for back in those days that you couldn't easily buy. So we, but we had access to a lot of good stuff, but we are still very limited to what we could do. Yeah, it's important that uh, that you, you know you you mentioned uh, training seminars. Uh, that's one thing that I attempted to do in the San Luis Valley is uh, get interested people together and actually uh, because it's such a sparse population where I was, you know, you couldn't really uh, do expect a group to show up necessarily because of the distances out there, but. But I was able to train a couple of people, uh, hands on, just one on one, uh, to, to do field work out there. But, uh, that's, that's a real, that's a real good question, Gene. It's, it's a real problem. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we need to get younger folks involved in this, carry the, carry the banner forward in this realm. We need to have, uh, I think more of a standardized approach. Uh, someone like Stan would be a, uh, really a perfect person to, to, uh, dovetail efforts and, uh, standardization of approaches for training. And another element that I always uh, stress with people that are interested in, in investigating these things is is also monitor, do follow-up work with people that have had high strange experiences. Oftentimes, these experiences are life-changing. And one of the, the real indicators of the validity uh, and the reality of an experience is to touch bases with them a year or two later and find out, you know, how this uh, event has impacted their life. And oftentimes oh, yeah. you'll find you'll find that these people, they have been irrevocably changed as a result of having these experiences. And and that's another thing that you don't see on the MUFON in the MUFON investigators manual is anything to do with with the experiencer, because, uh, you know, I have a, I personally have a hunch that the effect of the of these experiences on the person is as important, if not more important, than the actual nuts and bolts uh, details of the experience itself. So Maybe that is the experience, the effect. It, I have exactly. another quick question to ask of both of you here. Stan, we've had a couple of discussions, and in the PowerCast forums it's gotten pretty crazy, about UFO abductions. Do you have any abduction cases that you folks have investigated in Pennsylvania? And who investigates them? Okay, well, you must have read my mind because I was just going to bring that up as to what that uh, we were just talking about there a moment ago. I was probably one of the first investigators to really get involved in the abduction cases in the late 1960s, long before people heard much about abduction cases. And we, and I can tell you, in recent years, I've had next to nothing being called in on abduction reports, very few in this area. But back in the... Uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, we are getting quite a lot of reports like that from across the state of Pennsylvania. And we looked into a number of cases. And let me tell you, you can spend 
weeks, days, months just on one case. I mean, it's just, you know, it's incredible what you can get involved in some of these type of reports. And you're limited to what you can do, but you try the best you can. And I agree 100%. In many cases, especially important cases of close encounters with creatures or UFO cases, we try to keep in touch with witnesses, you know, for months and years after they happened. Yeah, so we looked into a number of abduction reports. And one thing I began to find back in the early days when you really start looking to the backgrounds of people, and I think maybe you fellas maybe have heard about this a little bit, but I began to find, and unfortunately, we just didn't have the time or the funding to do a, a detailed study of it. It just got to the point because we had so many reports coming out. I mean, we looked into thousands and thousands of events over the years, and, and this was all in your spare time. And, you know, you can only do the best you could do. But anyhow, going back, to some, I began to look into the backgrounds of some of these people and began to find that a lot of the people who claimed to have had abduction experiences also had sometimes a lifetime experience with other types of phenomena. A lot of them began as very young children having, you know, invisible playmates, seeing ghosts or some type of apparitions. And throughout their lives, some of these people would have UFO encounters, sometimes encounters with strange creatures, Bigfoot, other paranormal events in their home or other people in their families. I think there was a lot more to that than we really knew about. And some of that will come out in the next book. But um, I think it was very, very fascinating. Again, talk to some people who had some very detailed, what they claim to be their alleged abduction experiences. Some of them were very detailed accounts. But, again, I keep an open mind. I'm no expert on abduction reports. But I felt in some of the cases these people were very concerned. Their lives were very much affected by what was happening other people in their family sometimes were involved in some of the events, and they truly believed that something was happening to them that was, you know, wasn't a, a normal activity. But what this is all about, I still keep an open mind in this aspect as well. Well, then one of the questions that come up, of course, is how we investigate the cases. Were these all or mostly instances where people recalled consciously what happened, or did we get into that murky world of hypnotic regression? And again, I, it's, I'm reflecting back now over many, many years. And I don't have all these cases right in front of me. A lot of them, as I recall, a lot of them remembered a lot of the information consciously. But in some cases, there were some aspects where uh, there was some hypnotherapy involved. Back then, we, we had some pretty good people in the medical field and uh, psychologists and different people involved who were pretty well trained. Uh, to deal with these type of things. And so we had some people who were pretty good knowing how to do that type of thing without leading the witnesses. And some very detailed information, you know, was coming up in some of those events. Interestingly, we had, uh, I think it was one case we had many years ago with a businessman. He was actually driving from a, a particular town. He had to go out of town directly to get up a specific part for a customer, so he knew exactly where he was going. He had quite a period of time missing, and if I recall, that happened right on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Again, I'm just going from memory here, but... Uh, there were some really good drawings done at the time by one of the uh, people in our group while he was under hypnosis, and he described in detail the inside of the room, the craft, some symbols, the instrumentation on it. But interestingly, it was drawn from his perspective how he was lying down on this table, and everything was in perspective. It was very interesting. Where you go from there, I think part of the problem has been that there's a lot of people out there who wonder whether when you undergo hypnotic regression, you're really remembering anything that really happened, or maybe you're 
basically confabulating from a science fiction movie, or unfortunately the hypnotist is guiding you. This has become the major controversy these days. Yes. If you want to know more about that subject, just tune into the Paracast Forum. Oh, heavens. <laughs> you know, you I think basically it's, the it's reached the point where I'm about to put a stop to it because the problem is here is they're focusing on one case, and I'd like oh. to see them look into ways to improve the investigative methodology. Exactly. Certainly it's better if somebody consciously reports something and sees it. What about UFO photographs? Have you had any really good ones you know, I, I do see photographs come in every once in a while, and a lot of them, you know, there's a, especially when dealing with digital cameras, there's a lot of things electronically within the camera that can produce a lot of very strange images. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people contact me and other researchers, and they have some very odd-looking things on film, and they're, they're credible people. In most cases, they didn't see anything at the time the pictures were taken. And But, you know, it's very rare that I get really good pictures. Now, there is one picture in the book that uh, you may have seen that was taken just a couple years ago outside of Youngwood, PA. That was kind of interesting. And uh, these people, had, this uh, one person in the vehicle had just gotten a new cell phone just a few days before with a night shot setting and was just happened to be in the right place at the right time when they got a photograph of this uh, object, which was kind of a very large, luminous, uh, diamond-shaped object with a hump on the top and the bottom. It was moving out the rural area very low, and um, they watched this thing, and they finally got a clear spot where they, they wasn't blocked by houses, took one photograph of it, which did come out. And interestingly, which I'm sure you've probably heard of some of your cases as well, here's this large object that's there, then that all of a sudden it just disappears. It's not there anymore. And the, the one witness said, uh, basically said, it was there, then it wasn't there. You know, quite often we hear these stories of what appear to be sometimes large solid objects of various type of objects that... They appear and then they're suddenly just vanished. They're gone. They don't take off at a high rate of speed. They just disappear right in front of the witness's eyes. Yeah, the object uh, that you're referring to, I'm looking at right now in the book, uh, it's the one taken near Youngwood, Pennsylvania. Uh, to my semi-trained eye, it definitely looks like a real a real picture. There looks like a, a plasma uh, sheath or cloud around the object, uh, which is one of the first things I look for. Very few... Uh, <laughs> Billy Meyer, uh, sort of George Adamski metal craft photographs of, of, of objects I, I feel are real. I think most of those are faked. You look for that plasma, um, effect, the ionization of the air around the object to me is, is a real indicator of, of the, of the, you know, of a legitimate UFO photograph. And this one definitely, uh, looks, looks real. Well, the, the people involved, I mean, I interviewed them. They were very credible people. I have a guy that I work with for years that's a very good uh, researcher, and he does a, he's able to do some pretty good work with photo an analysis, and he took a look at this picture, too, and he uh, came away, and he really couldn't find any explanation for it, as I recall. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get a little tired of all these orb photographs that people uh, are, are presenting me all breathlessly saying, I was surrounded by angels, or I was surrounded by uh, by aliens. Look, uh, look at all these orbs. It's like, how come we didn't see all these orb photographs uh, prior to the digital age, you know? What uh, you know, what part of that do, do people not understand? And how come we didn't see them prior to the time they were actually photographed and after the photograph was exactly. seen? For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. 
To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Stan Gordon. He's written a new book called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, which is a casebook one, which means there will be sequels. And we have co-host Christopher O'Brien. In our final section, let's kind of put it all together again. So, Stan, are we looking at E.T. sending down strange creatures? Are we looking at the fourth dimension or what? Well, I'll tell you, my honest opinion is I don't have the answer. After so many years of investigating literally thousands of cases, having been able to, you know, eliminate a lot of things as IFOs, I mean, I get a lot of reports, a lot of things on the service seem very strange and unusual, but as we all know, when you properly investigate, and most turn out to be a natural or man-made in origin, but there are always that particular percentage of cases each year you cannot easily dismiss. My feeling has been for a number of years is that there's no one easy explanation for the unknown category of what we're dealing with. I You're think here. We- <laughs> is that, do you agree with what I'm saying? I absolutely saying? agree. I'm, I'm, uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm uh, quite a bit more confused now than I was when I started this uh, almost yep. 20 years ago. Yeah. So exactly, because I could tell you, over the years, you know, as things were developing in some cases over the years, and we finally were getting some patterns to it, then all of a sudden another case shows up that completely blows away that theory. And exactly. I, I said, the more we know, the more confusing it is. I, there's no clear explanation. I, I think that you cannot eliminate the possibility that at least a percentage could be extraterrestrial visitors. But, again, you, you've got these cases where you have a solid physical craft that suddenly appear in front of people or suddenly disappear. They change form. They go physically form into different types of craft. And, and then I think some of the some of the cases are really fascinating me. There's a couple of them in this book, by the way, are these small spherical objects that people see at very close range. They're anywhere from a few inches to a foot in diameter, and these they're fascinating. We we started getting news reports back in the '60s, and you know even some of the abductees have talked about these small spheres of light that they occasionally see in their homes. But I've had other cases of these small spheres. I had a case where uh, people had their windows down in the car, and these little spheres were inside floating around in the car. One case from many, many years ago, I believe it was up in Punxsutawney, up in the home of uh, Punxsutawney Phil. And, uh, so Punxsutawney woman... Phil is an alien creature. <laughs> Not so sure about that. <laughs> but anyhow, there was a case where a woman uh, had a spherical object small and fly into her a kitchen uh, through a window was floating around. She took a broom to it, so smacking with a broom, and she said it broke into two separate identical <laughs> spheres. They floated around the room, went back out the window, and, and went away. I love it. She attacked it with a broom. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we've had them on golf courses years ago. We had one in, in Pittsburgh where a small sphere was right above the golfers. They were swinging their golf clubs at it, and every time they swung at it, it would move up a little bit and finally took off. But the couple of them here in the book, I mean, there's some really interesting ones here where a uh, man and uh, his sister were sitting in their home, and they heard these taps on their window. And the look to see coming across the front window, which is only a few feet away from where they were sitting, is this red sphere 
that's just floating right across the window. It hit their window. He opens up the door. The thing flies up over his neighbor's roof, comes back in a few seconds, comes back to the window again. And you know, it was not illuminous. But it was a bright red color, and it had two long, thin beams of light coming out of it. Go figure. There's I've so looked, many I've, strange things we yeah. don't have the answers for out there. But I've noticed some patterning in these sphere reports. Uh, the ones that are about baseball size tend to be real, real bright laser ruby red, and uh, anything smaller than that, at least in my experience, in my case logs, tend to be like, uh, like Tinkerbell in the Disney movies. It's the larger ones that are like beach ball size that tend to go orange, um, and then you go up to the real big uh, green glowing, uh, huge green, green glowing objects that are uh, have, have been reported since the late 40s and 50s in the Southwest. So there is a little bit of patterning to size and color that I've noticed. Yeah. Well, again, there was a couple other ones mentioned in the book here, and there was the uh, one incident that uh, happened uh, several years ago. It was in a uh, shopping center here in North Huntington uh, Township. There were several people out there uh, who would, the mall, the shopping center had just closed down. This um, small, these people were talking out there, and one of the people happened to yell, said, look at that. Here was a small sphere. I mean, this was only as big as about a, um, I think a tennis ball, if I remember. And it was kind of like bubble, but much more solid in appearance. And it was only about, I think about six feet off the ground, as I recall. It was about ten feet away. The one guy said, he said, I could have stuck my hand out and grabbed this thing. But it was moving steadily across, right across from them, going down the road, down towards the other part of the shopping area, started to zigzag, and then it took off. But it was very, very close. It appeared to be a solid. And he said, whatever it was, it appeared to be some type of a probe. Yep. Or Tinkerbell. Okay, so Tinkerbell and Peter Pan are present in Pennsylvania. Chicksters. And they're here for a movie. I don't know. How far back can you go with this stuff, Stan? We look at current stuff. We mentioned Thunderbirds going back pretty far. What about the rest of it? Well, like I said, the earliest first-hand record I have of a Bigfoot goes back to 1931. I mean, there are uh, legends, and I believe there's some early 1900 references to Thunderbirds in Pennsylvania. Uh, UFOs go back, of course, you know, very, very, very far back. So, I mean, there's a lot of historical stuff that's going back for many, many years. People seeing these things. But my records actually uh, are most uh, up-to-date from, huh, I'd say, actually, my records go back to the 1890s in Pennsylvania up to the present. But a lot of the most, the, the largest amount of activity would be late 60s up to the present time. Because I got out in the field after the incident at Kecksburg in 1965 is when I began to investigate out in the field. So a lot of my records are pretty updated from that point on. My my earliest one is 1777, uh, believe it or not, which uh, I, it goes way back. I, I I do. Antonio Huneus mentioned that there were some from the late 1600s in New England, but but uh, we should mention, by the way, a lot of people don't know who Antonio is, and he's going to be on a future yeah. episode. So yeah. maybe explain who he is and what he does. Antonio Huneus is one of the top experts, I, I think, in the world on the historical. Uh, UFO reports that go back, um, you know, as as far back as uh, the Dark Ages, and and even back into into the classic Greek period, for instance, he's recently uncovered some amazing uh, what sound like abduction reports uh, uh, that are pre, you know, uh, Cortez in the Maya lands. Uh, very interesting guy, extremely knowledgeable. He was the international head of investigations uh, for MUFON for many years. 
Uh, he was a co-author with Don Berliner for the Best Available Evidence report that was funded by by Lawrence Rockefeller and the BGW Foundation that uh, that was uh, highly touted uh, back in the mid '90s. Um, he's been one of those, uh, you know, like Stan, just one of those quiet guys that doesn't promote himself. It doesn't doesn't create this cult of personality. Was extremely on the ball, extremely knowledgeable. You know, he's Chilean, so he really has his finger like Scott Corrales, for instance, has his finger on the pulse of Latin American uh, reports. And I uh, can't wait to uh, to get him on the show. He doesn't do many uh, radio shows, and it, it's like this show here with Stan. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. Yes, Antonio is someone I've known for a number of years, and maybe we'll have him and Scott on the show with you, Chris, and we could reminisce about UFOs and other paranormal cases. So anyway... As we wind this down, Stan Gordon, what do we do to improve investigations, to get better information, and maybe to get a handle of what's really going on? Where do we go from here? Well, I think you know, researchers have to start in their localized areas. They've got to do, they've got to get to that, that first level. They've got to get to where the reports may be coming into. If not to them, they need to make contact with the local police, local news media, resources that if they get the report, these people need to come across, you know, they're, that they're serious about this, to make the contact so they will get the information. That's the first thing, getting the reports. And then you've got to be able to handle the reports. You need to have the, the qualified people who know how to interview people and that have the capabilities to properly analyze what's being reported. And you got to start them young, and they have to be local or regional. Um, what I found in the San Luis Valley is outside investigators would come in to, to investigate cases and wouldn't get very far uh, because uh, you know people in, in oftentimes in rural areas where these, these events uh, tend to occur, oftentimes they're very suspicious of people coming from the outside. But if you live there and you have a local phone number or you know they know that you're from the area there, they're way more apt to open up and, and uh, confide in you. And uh, obviously, it's the whole anonymity factor. If you violate confidences or violate anonymity, uh, you, you'll just sink yourself. You only got one or two chances at that. And that's one thing I pride myself on is I honor all requests for anonymity. Yes. Now, in terms of getting official them to accept what's going on, is there a disclosure here that we could strive for or probably officialdom doesn't care or doesn't know what the answer is? Well, you know, we've looked at all these different different events and things that have happened even in recent years to try to get disclosure. And, of course, we're all hopeful that will happen someday. But over the many, many years I've been doing this now, I mean, I've, I've become somewhat discouraged over that, but I'm, I'm hopeful that something would happen because even back in, oh, boy, it's really going back a well, while. I say 1975, 76, there was indication that there was some talk that things were being handled on a certain level to begin to release the information to the public and things looked pretty good for a while and then as usual when these these stories start to uh, About every come 10 out years. in the community not right that nothing ever comes through and I, I'm just not so convinced that that's going to happen anytime soon yeah it, you become discouraged I become cynical and jaded <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. I don't know. I think the, the disclosure folk uh, are going to be waiting for quite a while before our tax dollars has anything official to say uh, about the level of their awareness, knowledge, and 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 uh, about all this stuff. It's just, it's just I don't see it anytime soon, probably not in our lifetimes. Let's put it that way. So we're destined to chase, but it will be forever elusive. I think somebody's going to have to mess up at, uh, at at some level and and will have some sort of or some sort of deep throat uh, type character that comes out and is able to 
supply irrefutable uh, documents and data, not like the MJ-12 documents, but something that can really truly be, be confirmed. I but think doesn't it's gonna that take, assume take there that. are such documents to be found? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, the federal government has has a real uh, obsession for for documentation. Uh, I'm sure a lot of these documents have been destroyed, but there's. I'm sure that there's something, something still. You know, maybe in that big, huge uh, document uh, repository that's uh, in Atchison, Kansas, in the old limestone mines. There's a million square feet of file cabinets basically there. Uh, I, I'm sure there are documents, but it's going to take somebody on the inside, higher you know, higher up on the inside, to feel compelled to, to come out and spill the beans on this. So right now it's not sitting there in Warehouse 13? No, it could be Warehouse 14 for all we know. Uh-huh. I kind of think of the scene in the original Raiders of the Jones. Lost Ark, you know, yeah. where they have the Ark of the Covenant and it goes into this dusty old basement beneath a Smithsonian or somewhere, and everybody forgets about it. Nobody cares. Right. And you right. wonder if they didn't get information even back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, and it's just being kept hidden somewhere because nobody knows what to do with it. They can't say, hey, we got this stuff but we haven't a clue. Yeah, exactly. It's the opening scene in the uh, the latest uh, Crystal Skull Indiana Jones movie too. I think is is in one of those types of warehouses, allegedly. So I I don't know. I I don't. I'm not holding my breath because I turn uh, many shades of purple and my head would explode before uh, we're going to get you know the exo politics uh, lusted after disclosure. Um, I think I think what we're seeing is other countries are disclosing to try to take the heat off the U.S. government, and uh, I think everybody else will disclose before the government even begins to, to entertain that. Yes, that but idea. what they're disclosing is nothing earth-shattering. It's just more exactly. cases with the same exactly. information. Exactly. But it's it's, yep. it's keeping the heat off the U.S. government because everybody gets, uh, you know, it's the, these are red herring disclosure pro- projects where, you know, the U.K. MOD, you know, and now they'll expose some documents or say, we're not going to investigate UFOs anymore, and that'll be a big news story, and everybody will be thinking about that and not dogging the U.S. government. It, it has to either be a public groundswell that makes it uh, politically expedient for disclosure to happen, which is is not going to happen anytime soon. Or listen, like just said, getting a public groundswell to improve space exploration. This is one of the things a uh, really a sore point with me that we're looking yeah. at the fact that we land on the moon in 1969, early 70s, and we have these half programs. And we're using the same technology from the V2 rocket to get us up there. This big firecracker gets us up there. And we're not looking for anything else. We're just coasting. We're just doing enough to stop the political criticism. There's nothing to drive us into space. 2001 will happen in 2201, what was in 2001 in terms of space travel, the way things are going now. Well, we have the Space Corps that's already out there. Gary McKinnon uh, claims that he was able to stumble on uh, a list of... uh off-planet, uh, you know, Air Force uh, personnel or whatever, and uh, and then of course we have our hollow Phobos too. I mean, uh, we probably have, uh, you know, the ultimate, you know, Cold War bunkers probably uh, spinning around Mars, right, Richard Hoagland? Well, if we bring Richard Hoagland on here, we're going to have to ask him those serious questions. But I want to know about Richard Hoagland's educational background, which isn't mentioned in his Wikipedia entry. Stan, we're not ignoring you. Okay, but I'd like you to spend a couple of minutes telling us about the book and where you go in your investigation from here. Well, of course, I get reports you know, quite commonly uh, from phone calls here, from emails, 
and I, of course, I'm working as an independent researcher now, still work full-time, so try to catch up and try to keep up with the current cases and try to get on as many as I can on current reports. I have the uh, second book hopefully coming out in the next few months. It's called uh, Silent Invasion, the uh, Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Casebook, which is going to focus on the 73 events. But people can get a copy of this newly released, The Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. I'll be glad to send them a uh, personalized autographed copy. They can look at my website and order it at stangordon.info, or they can call 724 838 Seven seven six eight, and we can also uh, order it directly by uh, phone as well. Why don't you give that number again? But now I understand a lot of people are going to call you and just you know want phone sex or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I get a lot of calls about UFOs and other strange phenomena quite often on this number at seven two four eight three eight seven seven six eight. What about an email address, or would you rather not receive the spam? Oh, no. If people want to email me, I get a lot of reports by email, which you can get through my website. It's paufo at comcast.net. Well, now Comcast is going to be slammed. <laughs> Chris O'Brien, what do you have coming up for us to check out? Well, I've, of course, I've got my new book uh, that's out, Stalking the Tricksters, uh, which uh, is... What's behind the trickster voice? And, of course, I do have a website, OurStrangePlanet.com, O-R-O-U-R, StrangePlanet.com. And uh, I'm working hard on uh, getting a, a uh, you know, 24-7 surveillance net of high-res video cameras in the San Luis Valley. We're, we're making strides to make that a, a reality. That has uh, been a project that I had in, you know, as a vision for quite a number of years. And uh, we're finally seeing light at the end of the tunnel for this project, and uh, it's real exciting. Thank you very much. Stan Gordon, author of Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, the first of a number of case books we expect. And, of course, Chris O'Brien, thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. It was a great show. Yeah, great, great having you on, Stan. And you're a real, you're an you know, unsung hero and a real trooper, and you've been a real inspiration for myself and many other uh, field investigators out there. Keep up the good work. I appreciate work. it very much. The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.